Welcome to the Inquisitive Vet Podcast. This is Simon speaking. Today we are going to be tackling how to approach and manage urine scolding in rabbits with Dr. Molly Varga. Molly is an RCVS recognized specialist in zoo and wildlife medicine and is the head exotic veterinarian at Rutland House Referral Hospital. Molly has contributed to many publications, including several of the exotic BSAVA manuals. She is also the author of the revised and updated second edition of the textbook of rabbit medicine. So, without further ado, hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Molly Varga. So, welcome, Molly. Thank you, thank you. So, I thought if we could start, if you could just tell me how you became an exotic vet, that'd be great. Okay, so I always wanted to be a vet. I'm totally the James Herriot generation. So in the UK, we got this on TV. I started watching that when I was about seven, maybe. And from then on, that was what I needed to do. Um, I got to secondary school about the age of 11. And in the library, there was a book by a guy called David Taylor called Zuvet. So, yeah, that with a little bit of David Attenborough mixed in there, all of that was what contributed to my um, interest in animals that weren't the norm, if you like. And can you tell us a little bit about what you did when you first came out of university? So when I first came out of university, I did the let's graduate, emigrate and get married in eight weeks plan. (laughs) So I went from London, um, England to Southern Ontario. I did my North American boards because nowhere was accredited right then. Um, I spent a year doing some wildlife work with beavers and things like that. I did some more EMS. And, uh, yeah, I got my boards and I started working in southern Ontario, fairly rapidly ending up in a, a good, um, a well-established exotics practice sort of within the first six months. And I just went from there. And just to dig a little bit deeper, was there any one pivotal point or any sort of decision that you can remember that really influenced your career? Honestly, honestly, I think it was getting myself brave enough to do the the additional qualifications and for a very long time I never thought I was good enough never thought at all that I could accomplish it and those qualifications have been the gateway they really have they've taught me how to learn they've taught me much better how to communicate and it's just broadened my horizon so I I'm I'm out of the tunnel if that makes sense like you know I try to have a very broad horizon with it and and that is what that has given me I completely understand that I was a small animal vet for quite a long time I've only decided that you know I've always had this interest in exotics all the way since university and only Mm -hmm. now starting to think oh well let's try and go for the qualifications now let's try and get a bit of you know go further now which is great so Today, we are going to be talking about urine scalding in rapids or urinary disease in general, which it's a big topic, but I thought that uh, you would be a really good person to talk uh, with about this. So what are some of the major physiological differences that you see in rabbits? So in terms of urinary tract disease and in terms of rabbits and urine scalding in particular, I think the first thing to say is that rabbits have quite a different calcium metabolism to dogs and cats. So compared to dogs and cats, rabbits will take up calcium from the diet indiscriminately. And what that means is that where 
we have rabbits perhaps eating loads of pellets that are relatively high in calcium. We have rabbits that then will have relatively high blood calcium levels. And rabbits actually excrete most of this excess calcium directly through the kidneys. So it goes through the kidneys, you're reliant on kidney function, and then you also get that calcium as a precipitate in the urine. And obviously some you know, some calcium is normal in rabbit urine because actually rabbits are supposed to, you know, they, they need to run with the punches in terms of how they deal with differences in diet in the wild. And actually we don't do that in captivity. You know, they have a very consistent diet and the calcium levels are usually high. So in the wild, it's, it's quite a different thing. Um, so definitely calcium metabolism would be the first thing second thing is that actually calcium isn't that soluble in alkaline urine and rabbits have a very limited capability to um, excrete hydrogen ions um, via the kidney so you're never going to acidify that urine so in terms of that we're always going to have that slight issue in um, as far as the fact that if there's so much calcium in that urine it's always going to sort of fall out of solution and sit at the bottom of the bladder. Other than that, um, the final thing that I would say is that we have to remember that rabbits very dramatically respond to a low phosphorus level in the diet by trying to grab phosphorus from the skeleton. At the same time, they will also grab calcium from the skeleton. So a low phosphate diet will result in increased calcium um, excreted in the urine. So it, it's high calcium diet, low phosphate diet, and as I say, a limited capability to acidify the urine. Okay. And just to quickly touch on it, um, some people do get worried when they see some red and orange urine. Um, it may be, do you mind just explaining why that might be the case and why that could be normal in some cases right so certainly when you get to sort of very yellowy and orange urine some of that can be pigment from the urate and calcium crystals within the urine other pigments such as um sort of carotenoids etc can be from dietary components so if you actually google rabbit urine in google images there's a really famous photograph that comes up from Greenbell Laboratories and actually rabbit urine can be as normal from bright red to almost clear um, with yellows and oranges and brownie sludge all the way in between and all of those can be normal. So definitely pigments in the diet, definitely a contribution of um, the solute in the urine as well. So red urine isn't always blood for sure. Okay and so just to move on from there I had a case of some sorts, but basically, if someone does see a rabbit, so say a five-year-old female, and they come mm -hmm. in um, with signs of unwilling to urinate, um, signs of urine uh, soaking or soiling, what are the essential questions that you like to ask uh, initially in the consult? You said it's a female rabbit. I want to definitely, definitely know, is it female intact or female spayed? Because either of those scenarios can certainly have an impact. Um, in terms of intact females, we do see repeatedly um, uterine adenocarcinoma and certainly discharge that sort of sits in the vaginal vault and is voided at the time of urination can impact 
it's certainly painful. Um, and certainly if you palpate these females, you should A, be able to palpate a thickened uterus and B, you'll notice that quite often it's uncomfortable. So pain and unwillingness to correctly posture in intact field meows can certainly be a predisposing factor. Second thing is that with spayed females, I'm thinking, you know what, maybe adhesion is going on, maybe not, but we need to certainly know that. As far as other questions that I would um, ask the owner at that point, what is the diet? What is offered and what is eaten? How is this animal provided with water? Has this animal lost its litter training? You know, is it is it still urinating in a corner or is it truly incontinent or is it sort of urinating and there's a degree of urgency? So I need to sort of assess all of those things. I also need to know actually how much it's drinking as well as the water provision. Um, other than that, whether there's any other signs going on. So um, quite often I do look for other things that are potentially related to issues with mobility. So things like hock sores, perhaps, or things like um, evidence of mites or poor grooming. And all of those things, I think, are actually probably quite relevant to the whole um, situation where we're starting to get an animal that is sort of urine-soaked. Mm-hmm. Just quickly, how do you measure water intake? What I try to get them to do is either to provide a bottle or a bowl, whichever they're used to having, measure the amount in at the beginning of 24 hours and measure the amount left at the end of 24 hours. And most rabbits will drink in and around 150 mils per kilo per 24 hours. So once you start to get significantly higher than that, then that becomes a little bit of a problem. Okay. You know, you can indicate there's an issue. Sure. And the other question I had was, are there any specific questions that you ask if it was a male rabbit um, that came in? So, again, I would check on the neutering status. However, I would say that this is probably, in most cases for neutered rabbits, less relevant. Um, Obviously, with unneutered rabbits, then potentially if there has been access to females and mating has occurred, then you could be looking at transmission of sort of other diseases such as um, treponema cuniculi, so rabbit syphilis, um, causing an initial irritation or something like that. But then again, I'm still after that looking at diet, water provision, water intake, and then issues surrounding mobility. Um, Other things, actually, one thing that I might highlight for both genders here, and I think it's something I, as a profession, we are often a little bit reluctant to discuss, is perception of predation. So is there a new cat? Is there a new dog? Is there a child? Is something in the environment changing that makes them actually a lot less willing to make themselves vulnerable? And I think that's something that quite often we forget. Does a rabbit being part of a multi-rabbit household play into effect as well? I think sometimes it can, and I think it depends very much on the structure of the household and how animals are kept. And quite often, as soon as you get more than a pair, so if you've got a trio or a quad, then I absolutely do become a little bit concerned, again, about reluctance to urinate. So in terms of that, what I'm looking at is the water 
resources. How many water resources are there? Can this rabbit get to water properly? Um, how many latrine areas are there? And is it does it feel safe in those latrine areas? How many hide boxes are there? Is there a hide box per rabbit plus one additional one to allow them to run between boxes? And uh, is each box just a rabbit size? And remembering that a hide box is not a tunnel. So all of those things to make certain that these animals are given the right environment to allow them to express urination behaviour. Sure, no, I understand. And so when it comes to your examination, can you go through maybe some of the clinical clues that you look out for uh, that can give you an idea of what's happening? Right, so what I always do with all of my rabbits um, these days is I put them on the floor before we do anything else so that they are kind of able to explore the environment. It gives me a good idea of where they are mentally a little bit, good idea of where they are physically. It allows me to watch them walk or hop. And obviously, if they're walking, then that's a little bit of a problem. Um, It allows me to see how active they are. It allows me to see indicative pain behavior before I even touch them. Then, obviously, I do my heart rate and my respiratory rate before anything else. And then, obviously, go ahead and do the clinical exam. Regardless, I'm still going to examine the head, um, particularly looking for signs of things that might be quite subtle, like early signs of middle ear disease, for example. So maybe we've got a little bit of middle ear disease. Maybe we've got some inner ear disease going on. Maybe we've got some facial muscle contracture that will put me in line with saying, you know what, I'm a little bit thinking there's a balance issue here. And then I'm certainly going to palpate the spine and also do range of motion on all of the joints. After that, once I've done all of that, palpate the abdomen. And again, very commonly, as soon as you have um, a rabbit that has urine scalding, potentially the bladder is large, potentially it's certainly very sore palpating it can make them sort of a strain to urinate and attempt to posture to urinate. Um, So all of those are very useful things. I will, in an intact female, I will really look for a uterus on my abdominal palpation. Um, I will also check size, relative size of the kidneys as well and whether they're uncomfortable. And then I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to um, tip this animal up and have a look at the perineal area and look at the hocks and look at the sort of damage that's been done by that skin sort of being wet by this kind of very sludgy, sticky urine. It goes without saying as well, actually, one thing that I should highlight is particularly with females looking at the body condition score and how overweight this animal is, because that can be a significant factor in making this whole kind of disease progression worse. Yeah, I see a lot of those. I'm sure you do too. Yeah, Um, definitely. So moving on from there, I wanted to talk about how you initially approach urine soiling in a rabbit with consideration of the interlinked pathophysiological processes that can be occurring. If we could start with a rabbit showing signs of dysuria, that would be awesome. Okay, so I think there are various things that can cause this unwillingness um, to urinate. And I think if we look at sort of environmental factors, as I've mentioned, so being scared, you know, perception of predation. I don't want to go out and urinate. My bonded partner is in a mood. I'm not going to go out and urinate. There's a dog. 
um, whatever, all of those things need to be considered. But then what about the other things internal to that rabbit? So I think the first one to say is pain. If it hurts to urinate, so you've got arthritis in your hops or your stifles or your coxofemoral joints, perhaps there's some spondylosis in the spine. Actually, perhaps you've got cystitis and actually the bladder contraction hurts. Perhaps this has been going on a little bit of time and actually, you know, you haven't been moving around. There is sludge at the bottom of the bladder and you can't fully contract the bladder. And when you do, the sludge is trying to come out of your urethra and then that really hurts. And just remember that sort of pain primarily in the caudal part of the skeleton, but not completely, will certainly inhibit urination. Thanks for that, Molly. This is really good stuff. For the people that don't know, I actually forgot to mention, there's a really useful diagram uh, in the book, the textbook of rabbit medicine, uh, both the first and the second edition. The first one being written by Dr. Francis Harcourt Brown. The second one uh, being updated by Dr. Molly Varga, who we are talking to now. I highly recommend that you check that out. It's really useful in getting your head around all the things that are happening uh, for these urine soiling cases. And so I think, um, yeah, definitely check it out. So just to help listeners to better appreciate what uh, is happening and how this cycle works, I understand there's a little bit of repetition, but can you talk about it from a different angle and tell us how reproductive disease, for example, can cause urine soiling? Okay, so I think things like um, syphilis definitely cause pain in the genital area and in the sort of area slightly surrounding the genitals and can also cause urethritis. So as soon as that happens, quite often if you've got urethritis, you'll get urine dribbling. And as soon as you get urine dribbling, you'll start to get urine scalding simply because the urethra is hurting and um, not functioning quite normally. If you're talking about um, discharges from the um, genital tract, again, those are quite commonly sort of somewhat held in the vaginal vault and quite often avoided more during urination. But actually when the volume of the discharge um, exceeds that the volume of the vault then actually you'll get uncontrolled discharge and again you're going to get a painful scalded perineal area and you're again likely to get urine um, dribbling and then you're going to get a painful peritoneum simply because in a very similar way to diaper rash nappy rash whatever you want to call it mm. as soon as you have urine sitting on skin and the same thing actually happens with tears if you've got a blocked tear duct as soon as you've got these um, bodily fluids sitting on skin they're really really irritant and we all know that rabbit urine does not wash out well from rabbit fur so it sort of sits there they can't groom it away and the skin becomes painful and then they don't want to groom it away and as soon as the skin's painful, they don't want to posture correctly because that hurts as well. So all of these things do um, contribute to actually quite a deteriorating cycle for these for these guys. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I also wanted to mention that when I first started um, managing these cases, one of the things I didn't really think about, I was always so focused on the back end, but I didn't think like dental disease 
Um, and those, like a lack of grooming, could be one of the sort of starting factors for this problem and actually start thinking about the whole rabbit rather than just that system. Yeah, no, I agree. I think as soon as these animals are not grooming adequately, then again, that is a real red flag for me. And in terms of that, as soon as the animal perhaps is showing signs of mites, for example, and that's something that you can see visually before you even get anywhere near examining those guys, um, you know, it, it's painful grooming is certainly high on the list. And again, spondylosis, obesity, dental disease, illness. And, you know, I'm always quite encouraged in the hospital when rabbits start to groom because that means they're getting, starting to get better. So again, all of these actually quite seemingly unrelated factors can feed into the perineal area becoming soiled and maybe not just with urine. And again, as soon as it's soiled with cicatrous urine, all of these discharges, the skin is red, it's sore, and you're into that deteriorating cycle quite rapidly. Can I ask how common it is? I know certainly uh, urinary sludge is quite common, but how common is it to find uroliths? I would say that I see uroliths maybe three or four times a year. And I would say I see calcium sludging easily maybe two or three times a month. So in my practice, in my experience, I would say that urolithiasis is less common than um, calcium sludging. Yeah, that's quite a big difference there. For those people who are very new to rabbit medicine, do you mind telling us what the ideal rabbit diet is? Okay, so I will recommend ad-lib hay. Um, and again, using a hay that is not overtly high in calcium. So I would avoid alfalfa hay as an entity. Alfalfa as a constituent of a balanced diet is absolutely fine. But alfalfa hay on its own, I would go with Timothy hay or meadow hay because the calcium levels are much lower. Um, so around and about a body-sized clump of hay. Um, I advise and advocate a variety of fibrous leafy greens. And again, a variety hopefully changing through the seasons. If you can grow them, so much the better. Um, you know, culinary herbs a little bit of kale, a little bit of spring green, maybe some carrot tops. You know, the, the world is your oyster in terms of that. You know, strawberry leaves, raspberry leaves, dandelions, plantains, you know, lots of different um, fibrous greens. And again, a bunch around and about the head size of a rabbit. And then bearing in mind, for full disclosure, I work for a pet food company, I still only advocate a small amount of a good quality pellet um, daily. So in and around 25 grams per kilo at the most, maybe a little bit more if they're growing or pregnant does. And in some cases, maybe we take the pellets away. You know, maybe for certain individuals, they are not the right thing. So, you know, in terms of that, mostly hay, a variety of fresh greens, and a little bit of pellets, but not in every case. Are, are the ones that don't require pellets ones that are prone to obesity? Yes, slightly prone to obesity. And those those rabbits that um, 
are kept without pellets do tend to be more lean. But I, my one my one caveat with that is that it has to be the right owner because we have to remember that those vegetables that we buy in the supermarket are not necessarily going to give you enough of what the rabbit needs simply because they're bred to be more succulent, they have more water, they have higher sugar levels than their wild counterparts. So I would tend to pick my cases quite carefully with that because actually if you get um, these rabbits on a very succulent diet of um, you know vegetables that are perhaps low in phosphorus, you're going to make the calcium levels in the urine worse. So at that point, actually, it's better to have pellets. Okay, I understand. Just quickly as well, when you said that alfalfa hay can be a constituent, and how much are you talking um, percentage-wise that you could add? And I assume it changes if you've got a growing rabbit or a pregnant rabbit. Yeah, I, I, if you're going to use alfalfa hay, then I'm actually going to look at the diet levels of calcium very carefully. Um, but what I, what I meant really more more specifically was that I repeatedly get people that are very concerned about pellets that have alfalfa in. And in terms of pellets, actually it's a very legitimate use and the calcium levels are controlled. In terms of alfalfa hay, for most of these guys, I would put it at about, uh, at the most, one-fifth of the hay um, and potentially less if we're starting to have problems. Okay, that makes sense. The other question I had getting back to the urine soiling is that E. caniculi tends to come up on a lot of people's differentials. I was just wondering if you could maybe give us your thoughts on that disease and how that sort of plays into urine tract problems. I think the first thing that I would say is that while E. caniculi can be found throughout the central nervous system, it is a very, very uncommon cause of um anything related to spinal disease so direct issues related to spinal damage affecting the bladder is unlikely to be cuniculi so the way in my head that this could feed in um, is twofold either we have a rabbit that has issues with balance and is finding it difficult to balance to urinate sensibly or we have a rabbit that is getting chronic renal disease secondary to E. cuniculi. I often find these rabbits, for whatever reason, lose their litter training and they're polydipsic and they're polyuric quite often. And these are more likely to urine scald um, rather than anything else. But a direct effect on the spinal nerves, no, I would, I would say that that is very, very unlikely. And we have to remember that a lot of rabbits have EC most of them don't become sick from it. So while it's on the horizon, it wouldn't, uh, you know, I'm with you, it wouldn't be my first differential. Okay, thanks for that. So maybe if we could move on now to diagnostic tests and how you uh, start your initial investigation and what sort of tests you find useful, uh, that'd be great. Okay, so actually with these kinds of um, cases, I definitely want to do a urine culture and sort of general evaluation. So I want to look at the cytology as well as the general dipstick and look at the specific gravity. In terms of the rabbit, if I have to choose where I go next, I actually probably want to do some sedation and diagnostic imaging because that gives me some rule-ins and rule-outs 
in terms of things like spondylosis and osteoarthritis. It can give me an idea of how thick the bladder wall is. It can give me an idea of how extensive the sludging is or isn't. And it also then allows me to clip and clean the perineum without hurting the animal. And it also then allows me to pass a urinary catheter and flush the bladder out. And I'm, I'm aware that older texts do ad, ad, advocate expressing the bladder, but having been in the room where somebody attempted to express a cat's bladder and it didn't express, it popped. Hmm. I think the, it's, it's far too risky and in my hands. I would not ever advocate that. Okay. So do you normally get collect the urine and do the x-rays and run those basically at the same time at the start? Is that... Yeah, I, I do tend that I do tend to do that, and then as long as the animal is well enough for me to do that, my initial assessment is, yeah, we're good to to jump in and and do this stuff. If it the animal isn't perhaps well enough, then actually analgesia, stabilization, fluids, getting the guts going, all of those things first. But um, once the animal is well enough to undergo it, then yeah, that diagnostic imaging. And then we can certainly look at, um, you know, hematology, biochemistries, perhaps EC titers if that becomes appropriate. In terms of sedation, are you talking about some sort of, uh, I don't know, light midazolam, betorphanol sedation, or are you, is it something uh, more significant? I tend to find that these guys, if they're very painful, will need a little bit more than just benzodiazepine and opiate. So I, I will probably, in most cases, go for a triple or a quad combination. So in the UK, um, we have various things that are authorised for use. But in my hands, for these kinds of cases, I feel like we need the opioid on board. Um, I feel like ketamine gives us some pretty good analgesia as well. And then I will certainly use midazolam because it does just chill them out and it does relax them. And then the question is whether I add in meditomidine or not. Um, and it depends on the level of pain because obviously alpha-2 agonists do have a degree of analgesia associated with their use as well. So in terms of that, compared to the authorised drugs that perhaps don't have as much analgesia associated, I think it's probably a more pragmatic option um, Mm. for me. And in my hands, I find that because I can antagonise the opioids, I can antagonise the benzodiazepines and I can antagonise the alpha-2s to whatever degree, then it gives me a very precise way of um, dealing with these animals safely. And we have to think that, you know, some of these are quite compromised sometimes. Okay. And how do you normally collect your urine? Or what is the best way of doing that? I tend to collect it actually by um, urinary catheterization rather than um, express or free catch. If I have the opportunity where I can safely visualize the bladder on ultrasound and I'm not too worried that I'm going to go through guts in order to get there and I'm not too worried that the bladder wall is going to pop, then I'm you know, i quite happy with ultrasound-guided cystocentesis as well. But it's, you know, sometimes that can be a little bit challenging and sometimes these bladders are quite fragile. Mm-hmm. Is it quite challenging to catheterise a female rabbit, by the way? It 
I think it's a little bit of a knack. And once you start to catheterize female animals, then you'll develop your own method. Either you can use a speculum and visualize the entrance to the urethra. What I tend to do is I actually tend to sort of sit the female rabbit over the edge of a table so that its legs are dangling down. And I, I actually put the catheter in blind. So I've got um, a Tomcat catheter with a stylet, lubricated with sterile lube, and I just run it down the midline of um, the vaginal vault until I pop in to the urethra. And in most cases, I'm making it sound easy, <laughs> yes. but most most cases it is easier than you think it's going to be. Can I ask you what size urinary catheter uh, you normally use? I usually use a four or a six French, um, literally the Tomcat catheter size. Oh, so yes. it's quite a narrow gauge, quite a narrow gauge, um, but it's sufficient. You know, I don't, I don't need to necessarily put contrast or anything into this bladder and have it stay there. So it's sufficient for me to get fluid ingress and egress. Um, and quite often what happens is if I'm flushing the bladder after I've got the catheter in, then actually the fluid egress is around the catheter um, with a lot of you know a lot of the blood at the same time. I just had a quick question about um, the urinalysis side of things. If you do see hematuria on a dipstick, is that something I can be confident in, or is should I really be looking at the cytology to confirm that? No, I would really look at the cytology. I wouldn't be confident of the dipstick. Um, simply because actually some of the pigments can affect how you read the dipstick. Okay, sure. Uh, always, always go down to cytology. Okay. How do you actually differentiate between what is urinary sludge and what is just urine with normal uh, crystals in it? I think in a lot of ways this is all a grayscale and most rabbits will have turbid urine. And as soon as you've got a rabbit, to me the sludge is the bit at the bottom of the bladder you know, where it hasn't been voided and what have you. It's not just turbid urine. It's a function of turbid urine and inability for whatever reason to be normally mobile and get that shaken up and be willing to urinate. And um, before we go on to some of the other diagnostic tests that you find useful, you said that in some cases that you would stabilize some rabbits. Can you go in a little bit more specifics in terms of what you give rabbits to stabilize them? If we have a rabbit perhaps that has urine scalding, it's perhaps not eating, it's cecotrophs, perhaps it's losing weight, perhaps now it's not eating, then those are the ones that I'm I'm talking about. If there's any dehydration, anything like that. So any rabbit that's not eating, I assume to be at least 5% dehydrated. So those animals will get fluids, they will certainly get analgesia, will reassess the appetite and the willing to, willingness to eat, will support feed. Um, and go down that route, we may or may not use prokinetics depending on the case. But it is the, these animals that, you know, there is the knee-jerk reaction to say, I've got this issue, I can fix it by knocking it out and doing A, B and C. So that's what I'm going to do. But we need to remember to take a step back and say, actually, is this animal really in a good state for that to happen? Because if it's massively painful, it's massively stressed, you know, it's not eating, you know, you've weighed it, the weight's the same, it's obviously fine, but, you know, you're look, looking at it and you're thinking the body condition score is deteriorated, 
there's a lot of other stuff that is quite often going on. So with all of these, I you mentioned this actually earlier, it's actually the point about looking at the whole rabbit mm-hmm. and saying, right, we need to get this animal to this point, but remembering that we probably need to hit, let's get it hydrated first, let's get its guts moving even if it won't eat voluntarily, let's get those guts moving. Because actually, as soon as you don't have good hydration, and as soon as you don't have good gut motility, then realistically, you have some very um, rangy electrolyte levels, almost certainly, and you have an impact on the sedation that you're going to give. You know, And these animals are where you hit the morbidity and mortality rather than the good outcome. Can I ask if if you do have a rabbit where you're where it's not urinating very well um, or looks like it's painful, do you worry sometimes about how much fluid you're supporting or how much fluid you're giving? Okay, so if I feel like it's obstructed, then that would be one of those cases where yes, I would use a more conservative fluid rate. If I feel that it's not urinating because it's painful, then what I might well do is I might do some of the diagnostics with this rabbit conscious so that I can sort of have a a brief survey x-ray and say, okay, I've got a stone or I haven't. Um, I've got a huge bladder or I haven't. But if if I feel like it's only painful, then I will analgese the hell out of that rabbit so that it's really comfortable. And I will do whatever I can to, you know, slather barrier cream around its perineum or whatever so that it's much 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 more comfortable to urinate until we can be stable and get in there and get it clipped can i ask what cream you use okay so i usually use a barrier cream there are a variety um around we tend to use f10 barrier cream simply because it's got an antiseptic in it and it is i believe sort of paraffin based so very similar to sort of vaseline type barrier creams um you can use zinc based ointments that are used for kids with uh, nappy rash all of those are actually quite safe as well um but obviously with the zinc based ointments you've got fur that is covered in urine that's got particulate matter and then you're putting zinc cream on that has a degree of very finely ground up mineral in it and that ends up being quite a mess it can be as simple as just using vaseline you know keep it simple okay and um in terms of pain relief i know that you've mentioned a little bit about this with the sedation and things is it a combination of an opioid um, and a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory that you use absolutely i mean it depends how painful the animal is appearing to be my go-to would be buprenorphine but we can go to methadone if we need to. And I would certainly use a non with that as long as I'm not concerned about hypovolemia. So as long as these animals are not volume depleted, I'm good with it. And would meloxicam be something, one of the examples of something you could potentially use? Yeah, and I think we all use meloxicam simply because it's easy and it's a very good drug, but it's a liquid formulation and that's why we use it. Now, before I went off at a tangent, we were discussing your analysis as well as radiographs and how you investigate these cases. Do you have any other diagnostic uh, tests that you like to run? We'll tend quite often with these guys to go to, you know, full blood hematology and biochemistry 
And as I say, if it's appropriate econiculitis so that we know. As far as other diagnostics, there are some cases where ultrasonography at this point is going to be quite useful. And it depends on your skill level and it depends on your machine. And I'm quite lucky we've got a good machine. We have a cardiology scanning table so I can scan these rabbits from underneath. I'm not as worried about the gas in the guts causing artifact. However, my skill level with ultrasound is not as good as potentially with radiography or with CT. With some of these guys, we actually do put them through the CT because that gives us a really, really good idea of kidney function, for example. It it allows us, with the contrast, to visualise kidney function. It allows us to track the ureters. It allows us to track the urethra. It allows us to see the thickness of the bladder wall, if there's any. It gives us a lot more detail. So if you have the capability to do that, then that actually can be very useful. But obviously, if you're looking at soft tissue, CT is a blunt instrument compared with MRI, but CT is so much cheaper. So if you've got the capability to do an MRI, amazing. But for us, for most of these rabbits, it's out of reach, really. I would say most most general vets as well would be out of reach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's fair enough. Now, I'd like to move on to treatment. And I know that you've already mentioned some of the treatment options that are out there. But there seems to be a lot of factors at play. And so I was wondering if you could talk to us about uh, how you prioritize treatments and create that treatment plan for these patients. Um, I think what we need to do is have a very clear understanding of where this individual animal is at. So that means that we've done a robust examination. We've done a robust history taking. We've done some good diagnostics. So we've got a good idea of where we are and I think what we need to do is we need to make certain that you know this animal is able to maintain its fluid balance so it's eating properly it's not dehydrating because it's got kidney disease if we've got bloods we can assess whether we have kidney disease or not and if we've got kidney disease then that can be treated and in terms of kidney disease I usually use ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blocking um, drugs like telmisartan. So a lot of these guys do very well with that. If we've got um, very high phosphorus in the bloodstream, that tends to be a little bit of a marker. If we've got E. cuniculi, and I believe it to be um, a significant factor, then we'll use fembendazole and we'll watch those animals quite carefully because I I do recognize adverse reactions with that drug. If we have osteoarthritis, then again, absolutely non-steroidals, even in the face of renal disease, because rabbits seem to be able to tolerate them quite well. So cautious doses, perhaps with another analgesic such as tramadol for the longer term. And rabbits do do quite well with tramadol, and it is likely that doses above sort of 11 milligrams per kilogram actually are effective and they do seem to have the enzyme that converts it into the active form so i you know analgesia um and then finally and this actually can be the most difficult part for owners really 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 looking at the environment and being really honest about what you're giving that animal and what that animal is experiencing in terms of fear and you know, 
allowing it to have hide boxes, allowing it to have a refuge and a respite and recognizing actually that having your two year old cuddle the rabbit every evening for two hours is probably not great for the rabbit. And, you know, I think these are very difficult things for owners. And then finally, in terms of feeding, these are where perhaps the lower calcium pellets come in and quite a few companies now are making low calcium pellets being critical of what type of hay you're using and absolutely avoiding the alfalfa at this point and then looking at those lower calcium um, vegetables or perhaps those vegetables that are going to be slightly diuretic things like dandelion leaves and raspberry leaves and making certain that if you're feeding veg that all of the veg are fed wet. So you wash them and you do not shake them. So each mouthful okay. is a mouthful of veg and water as well. And reevaluate your water resource and give these guys bowls as well as drinkers because almost inevitably most rabbits will drink better from a bowl, particularly as soon as they've got mobility issues. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. I did want to go back a little bit in terms of when you were – um, talking about using non-steroidal anti-inflammatories uh, when you do have a rabbit with renal disease. I know that certainly when it comes to doing those things, a lot of vets would be reluctant about that. And you said that um, a non-steroidal as a more conservative dose if you do have kidney disease. Are you talking about maybe like half what you would normally give? Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about the bottom end of the dose range. And oh, okay. going for, sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, what historically, and you know, meloxicam has been used in rabbits for years now. Historically, we would give very high doses of meloxicam, um, and we'd give high doses twice a day. We would follow these guys, and particularly if these guys had renal failure, and actually we wouldn't see a deterioration as long as the renal failure was controlled. So, in terms of that, I feel relatively safe however because I hopefully I've evolved in terms of my provision of analgesia um, we tend to use a low dose of non-steroidal now maybe add in paracetamol acetaminophen depending where you are in the world um, because actually that's a good low level analgesic maybe add in, as I say, tramadol that doesn't have a negative effect on renal function. So in terms of that, we, I'm going more to low doses of more than one thing um, at this point. But usually, um, bef- once you get to the very, very low doses of meloxicam, you know, below what we think is therapeutic, it's unlikely to be helpful to the animal. Okay, no, thank you for that. So we're nearly ready to wrap things up. There are just a few questions that I like to ask everyone that I talk to. So we're sort of moving away from the urinary disease things now. And so I was just wondering what you think about exotic medicine and where the profession is heading, uh, maybe where you think the future of the uh, industry is going. I think we are playing catch up a little bit with cats and dogs. Um, but I think we're catching up much more rapidly than those guys realize. And I think we're doing some amazing work. But I feel that with some of the species we keep, more and more of us feel like we should be working ourselves out of a job. 
And there are some species that just don't do well in captivity. And I think that, you know, we should really reevaluate how they're kept and, to be fair, whether they're kept in captivity. You know, I'm talking about things like marmosets and maybe some of the bigger parrots as well. You know, you just think these guys are so smart and so capable and actually so poorly adapted to what we can offer them even though what we can offer them now is amazing compared to what we offered them maybe three or four hundred years ago, still, you know, just jars a little bit. And so I think that, you know, we're, we're running forward technologically, clinically, you know, but we're running with welfare in our hands, if that makes sense. And it has to be that, that parallel promoting welfare as well as, you know, improving the level of care. And sometimes welfare is not having these animals, sadly. You know, I I completely agree with you. Um, certainly, I think from the care point of view, I do find that the level of care um, maybe uh, is, is not as high as maybe something like a dog or cat, um, purely because it's just a more difficult animal, you know, to take care of. And there are a lot yeah. of needs and things yeah. that we just ignore. Yeah. Absolutely. And, it, it, you know, we're fighting with rabbits and rodents for them to not be um, sidelined as just a child's pet. Now, I also wanted to ask, what book do you most recommend to vets? I think Fowler's in Wildlife Medicine. I've read every single edition. I've literally read those. If I'm um, looking at other books, perhaps, that uh, I would recommend to vets there's a book by um an english guy who used to be um, an obstetrician called this is gonna hurt and this is a book about being a clinician and actually it's an amazing book this guy now is no longer an obstetrician he does works comedy for tv shows and stuff like that but that is an amazing amazing book and it's well worth a read particularly, you know, if you go through all of the struggles that all of us go through, you know, in, in daily clinical practice. It's um, funny that you bring that up, um, that, and that book being um, written by Adam Kay. Um, yeah, Adam Kay. Yeah, that was fantastic. I love that book. So just two more questions. One of them is, what is the one piece of advice um, that you would have given yourself back when you were first starting out as a recent graduate? Don't always think that anything that goes wrong is my fault. Which is so hard for all the perfectionists. Oh, God, yes. It, and that is really, really, really hard. And I think the thing that I think reflecting back, and um, I'm in touch with people that I've worked with sort of 30 years ago even, and their perception of stuff was so different than mine at that point. You know, and I think a lot of us as quite A-type personalities, perfectionists, having to have been so perfect all the way through to get out into clinical practice and realise, God, life is not like that. Most animals haven't read the textbook. Nobody's got any money for MRIs. And, you know, actually, if the antibiotics don't work because actually all the flea control doesn't work. I had a brilliant one. We have flea control in, in Canada that was all drops, and I prescribed this for a ferret and it came back four weeks later and it was 
completely flea-ridden and the owner had been giving it as a suppository. Um, oh, totally, gosh. Totally, that is not my fault. Um, but so, yeah, to, to own, to, to disown actually fault from a lot of it. Some of it's your fault. Some of it you screwed up and all of us do. But actually, there's a lot of times where you take that on board and you take it as your own and it isn't. And that affects all of us, I think, all yes. of us. Thank you for that. And the last question uh, is if you could send one text to every vet in the world, what would that be? You've got this. Great. Yeah, I really like that. So that just about sums it up. Uh, I would like to just thank you for taking the time to be able to talk to me today. It's been absolutely awesome. Yeah, totally welcome. Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I just have a few things to say. Firstly, if you have any feedback for the podcast or any recommendations on how we can improve it, or if you know any potential guest speakers you think would be great on the podcast, please post a comment on iTunes or Stitcher or go to our website at inquisivet.com. That's I-N-Q-U-I-S-I-V-E-T.com. I also need to quickly go through our disclaimer with you. So the Inquisivet podcast is brought to you by Barvest Proprietary Limited. Our podcast publication is for general information purposes only and do not take into account your specific needs, objectives or circumstances. Content is based on the professional opinions of individual doctors and other healthcare professionals who have contributed their content. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests or contributors and are not necessarily those of Barvets. Barvets is not responsible for errors or for opinions expressed in this podcast. By listening and downloading our podcast, you agree not to use our content as medical device to treat any medical condition in animals, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Barvets expressly disclaim any warranties or guarantees expressed or implied and shall not be liable for damages of any kind in connection with the material, information, techniques or procedures set forth in this podcast. This disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll see you later. Bye.